Music to Code By is taking the developer world by storm. Now there are six extra tracks available online in addition to the original three. That's nine Pomodoros of pure productivity just waiting for you. Check them out at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1220, recorded Saturday, November 14th, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's time for .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, it's geek out time. How are you doing, my friend? Well, I got a basement full of water. What happened? Uh, the main drain for my house plugged. We're not sure why. And so when we had a big heavy rain, which is not that unusual in this part of the world, uh, overnight it put about an inch of water into the basement. And then it drained back out again. But I came downstairs. It was literally in a six-hour window. You know, I go to bed about midnight. I get Oof. up about six in the morning. So when I went to bed at midnight, the basement was dry. When I went back downstairs about 6.30 in the morning with a cup of tea, squish, squish. I'm like, uh, no. Oh, I thought it was going to be your water-cooled PCs. Remember that? <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> I, I don't have water-cooled PCs anymore. I, I stripped all that stuff out. And for those who don't know, Richard Campbell was a guest on .NET Rocks on show 69. Yes. And he talked about water-cooling his PCs and flying cars. And this was in 2003. Yeah, 2004, something like that. It was yeah. way back there. Anyway, so you used to water cool your PCs, and I asked you, I remember this, I said, what happens when it leaks? Well, I said it makes a puddle on the floor. I even did a blog post about the puddle on my floor. Yeah, and but it never really leaked inside, because on the electrical components, you never had an electrical fire, right? No, no, but you know, water won't cause an electrical fire, just make a mess. And yeah. there was only about a cup or so of water in a cooling loop anyway okay till i went to the centralized system that had gallons but uh eventually machines ran so much cooler it just wasn't necessary anymore now this is a good old-fashioned normal flood you know we i did have a flood in the basement before for those who've been listening for forever yeah but that was a burst fish tank right which is a whole other problem yeah so we don't have fish tanks anymore this was the flood of the old-fashioned way too much rain not enough drain yeah now you're wet and yeah so you just what can you do well, I call the insurance company, and the guys come out, and they're talking about dismantling the entire basement to dry it out. Oh. So, I mean, the way the house is wired, and maybe I'll do this on the smart home show whenever we get around to doing that, I'm able to just reroute, we're just rebuilding an office upstairs, and I'll move machines and stuff out here, then the crews come and clean everything out, dismantle everything, pull it all out, then we'll do all the repairs, and then we'll decide what happens from there. Well, Richard, I thought... Uh, you know, what is better on a Saturday night? Cause that's when we're recording this show. Yes. And it's in the evening after dinner. Well, you're probably eating dinner right now or about to. Well, and cause you're on the other side of the continent. But, yep. um, I thought I would pull out a bottle of scotch that I got in Scotland or London, maybe. Yeah. It's a Benriness 15. Nice. And this is one of those flora and fauna scotches that you told me about that are, uh, distilleries. It's in Aberlour, 
which is, you know, a place that I love. Yep. And they make good, 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 good scotch there. And uh, it's just one of these distillery bottles. So it's not a label. No, that you really use a very generic bottle. Yeah. They're all they all sort of look the same. Yeah, yeah. But it's very good. So to you, my friend. Cheers, nothing, buddy. Nothing is more civilized to me than to sit back and listen to my friend Richard and have some civil discourse about cool toys. <laughs> Well, and that's always the joke about the geek house, right? As long before we were recording them, we would do them when we were together. Right. We'd just talk. And, you know, it's kind of it's kind of fortuitous that we're that we're drinking scotch because we are going to be in Scotland. We are indeed, right after NDC London. Right. The week after NDC, we're going to do a three-stop tour of Scotland. We're going to Glasgow. Edinburgh and Aberdeen. Right. In that order. Yes. And uh, this is going to be January, the week of January 18th. 18th. And uh, we do not yet have the links up where you can sign up, but we will soon. Just keep watching .netrocks.com. Actually, we might have them by the time this show airs. So I hope so. Yeah. We're pretty close to it. So yeah, but uh, I'm really looking forward to this. And I think we're going to get a few days afterwards to do a little uh, scotch tasting. I maybe. hope so. You think? Yeah. <laughs> It'll be fun. Well, Richard, back on show 69 of .NET Rocks, we talked about water-cooled PCs, which is sort of appropriate to your situation. But we talked about something else. Do you remember what it was? Flying cars. Flying cars. Yes. Better know framework. Roll the music. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? All right, yeah, I remember having this conversation with Mark Miller, who was, like, disappointed at the promises of the future that were made in the 50s and 60s, you know? Yep. He's like, where's my jetpack? Right? And, well, it turns out that jetpacks are sort of here. Yeah, they are. So, um, you know, you can't fly across the country with them, but it turns out Martin Aircraft is going to have one on the market in 2016 or 2017, I'm not sure exactly when, but if you go to tinyurl.com slash martinpack, that's M-A-R-T-I-N-P-A-C-K, this is an article in The Guardian where they talk about new tech entrepreneurs and innovators that are reshaping transit. So it's all about you know, uh, it's all about vehicles and new vehicles. And one of them is the Martin Aircraft Jetpack, second half of next year. That's what it is. And apparently, it soars almost a 1,000 meters and flies for up to half an hour. Yeah, I've been watching this for a while. I mean, it's not really a jetpack in that sense. Yeah, it's it's sort of a harness you stand in. They're turbines. Yeah, and, and these are fans. Yeah. Uh, big fans run off a gasoline motor. Kerosene. Uh, but it's real. They fly. There's video you can watch of them flying it unmanned. And untethered. Right. And, un and untethered. Uh, in, if, on that particular article you've got from The Guardian, the, there's a white thing in sort of the center of the craft. Right. That's actually a rocket-propelled parachute. Isn't that crazy? So your backup, if something goes wrong, is to fire this parachute and then float safely back to the ground, find yeah. something nice to land on. So they've done a lot. Yeah, they have. And, you know, the, the person that you talked about in 2003 or 2004, whenever it was, yeah. was Moeller, Paul, Paul Moeller. Moeller yeah. And all of his videos showed him 
with tethered only flights and he had a an actual flying car that had four jets on each side that could sort of turn but i guess it was a little unwieldy and unstable and never really got off the ground so to speak well it flew but they flew it only tethered just for safety's sake and they were still working out problems you know I never know what to do of Paul Moeller. He's yeah. always on the edge of bankruptcy, always on the edge of being charged with fraud. Like, it's, right. <laughs> you know, we did that show more than 10 years ago yeah. and it still doesn't exist. Right. But, uh, you know, we did that show on automated driving way back when, I think episode 900. Yeah. But there's a, there is one more thing in this article in the Guardian that's interesting, which I don't know if you're going to talk about sometime, but it's, Elio Motors or Elio. I'm not sure how to pronounce the guy's name, but the name of the company is E L I O. And he's got a car that gets 80 miles to the gallon. And he does this, he says, by instead of having a car that's wide where, where passengers sit next to each other, it's two passengers, but they sit one behind each other. Right. If you so think it's about almost it, more it, of a motorcycle. Like a motorcycle covered, right? Yeah. It's aerodynamic. It's like an aerodynamic motorcycle. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting as well. And the more interesting things about this 84 mile per gallon car is that it only costs seven grand. Yeah. That's a good price for the base. You know, if they're actually selling it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, prices are great when you can't actually buy one. So I yep. mean, I'm interested to see what it comes out at, but uh, it's. Yeah. It is an ongoing battle. And they, per, you know, I tweeted out about doing this airliner show and lots of people were asking about personal transport stuff. Back in 900, we talked about until we have automated driving, we'll never have automated flying and yeah. personal flying is not really going to take off yeah. until it's automated. Right. Because normal humans, it's just way too hard to fly. Well, that's all I got for Better Know Framework. Tinyurl.com slash Martin Pack. So who's talking to us today, Richard? I grabbed a comment off a show 1145, the one we did back in May with, that we called the Geek Out Recap, where we just sort of went over a bunch of things that had been left behind and caught up different bits and pieces. Right. And uh, Phil Marshall had this great comment. He said, I've been listening for years during my commute. I've often thought of comments, but by the time I get back to my desk, they have left my brain for another place. Mm. And besides, their currency seems lost as I often listen quite a few weeks after the shows are published. This episode gives me an opportunity to bring back some of them, and uh, here's some random points. I was grimacing when the conversation was focused on linking the grids in the USA and the big cost and uncertainty involved. Mm. I think that's when I talked about the Tres Amigas system. All right. A decentralized electrical grid is where we are headed. Yes, it is. That's what we talked about on the Smart Grid show that's way right. back when. Yep. The more local, the better. We need to be putting R&D into making localized electrical production more efficient, there will be a tipping point between smaller scale electrical efficiencies versus distribution losses and large infrastructure maintenance overheads. Mm. Now, yeah, I'll disagree with you here on this, Phil. Distribution losses are going down dramatically, much faster than efficiencies at small scale. So yeah. we're going to lose there. But I do believe in this idea of more localized power generation just because uh, it's easier to handle in a lot of respects. Mm -hmm. uh, by way of comparison, the Internet didn't get so big and popular by being a centralized system. That's true, but it's also a mindset that's beyond most people. Just because us, the fellow geeks, understand peer-to-peer -peer networking doesn't mean normal people do, much right. less people who own power plants. Yeah. It's a, it's a difficult thing to do, but it is clearly the future. That's definitely the way to go. Yep. Here in Australia, the centralized generation and distribution model is becoming harder and harder to maintain. It is everywhere in the world. Uh, 
It was great to hear you mention the Carnegie's wave energy system off the coast of Perth, mm. which was, that was one of the ones that just missed the wave power show we right. did. Right. Uh, they are local to me and I've been following them with interest for the past few years. I was looking forward to your take on compressed air for energy storage as an alternative to batteries. Compressed air. Yeah. When we talked about the energy storage show and we we're talking about all those other ways to store power. Right. And the, the Carnegie's wave energy system actually uses compressed air that those boys are moving up and down and they actually pump air pressure up to spin turbines. Well, okay. It's a, it's a cool concept. The question is how much, you know, pressurized air is tricky to store. It's easy to lose. Right. On the other hand, it can't really blow anything up, right? It doesn't burn. It seems like it would be hard to equalize, right? You know, to be hard to maintain a constant pressure. Yes. You know, you have to have a very high pressure storage vessel and then you slowly let it out at a pressure that'll turn turbines efficiently. Right. But, right. uh, and, and, Phil goes to make that point. It may not be for mainstream large scale, but it's promising for rural and off-grid scenarios. Yeah. And if he's hanging around Perth, he's used to pretty small towns. So, yeah, they, these systems seem more interesting there. Uh, and talking about other fringe ideas, I would love to hear your thoughts on space elevators. Also a topic very close to the top right now as a medium term solution for the cost of lift. We Media. talked about space elevators in one show. Well, a little bit. Yeah, one of the early space shows we did, but there's a lot more research out there now. I mean, it's a difficult problem, but it's an interesting topic. So it's still on the list. Yep. Uh, Phil, thanks so much for your comment. The .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media we post to because we put up every show on Facebook and Google+. Comment there. We read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. And, of course, we tweet. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And we'd love to read tweets. Just go ahead and send them. In fact, send them to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> you silly bugger. Who's into this guy? I love this stuff. All right. Yep. Anyway. It is very tasty. Well, where do we start with the future of aircraft? In this article that I sent you, uh, or The Guardian, one of the things in there was an XTI aircraft that takes off vertically. And this is, I, th- I think this has been a sort of a, uh, uh, holy grail of aviation. If you can get an aircraft that takes off vertically and then flies it, you know, with jets, then you don't need airports anymore. Right. You can go more with the helicopter fo- yeah. point of view. As I started putting together notes for this, I realized I had to sort of focus in on a particular subject area. Mm-hmm. So I started, I've ended up really just focusing on the airliner because there's so much development oh. going on in that space. Yeah. Uh, and let's face it, the the airliner today is a remarkable machine. Really I would is. argue it's some of the highest regularly used technology in the world to the point where we just take for granted how amazingly sophisticated it is. Yeah. If you so if we talk about the top of the line airliners that exist today, that would be Airbus's A three eighty and Boeing's seven eighty seven. The Dreamliner. The Dreamliner. The Dreamliner is the one that had the electrical fires, right? Right. That was the 787. Yeah. Uh, and it, they, both these planes had berthing problems. Okay. The, the 380 was born out of this idea of building a bigger airplane, bigger than the 747. Uh-huh. And, and I think Airbus was mistaken because they, they just haven't sold that well. Like hindsight's 2020. They'll probably never make back the money that they spent trying to develop an aircraft quite that big. Okay. I mean, the theory, the, you know, the, air, the, the 747 sort of tops out around the 450, 475 people. Mm-hmm. The 380s as they fly today are 550. And if you did all one class, which would be horrible, like mm. all economy, it would be 800 people. Wow. 
So, and I don't really have much more to say about the 380 than that. It's an enormous aircraft. The 787 to me is way more innovative. Yeah. Carbon fiber body. Uh, it's just like there's so much cool about that airplane. And the interior is ridiculous too. Absolutely. Yeah, just Google it. 787 interior. Have you had a chance to fly in one? I never have. Nope. Uh, so it's as good as you think. Like really. The interior is amazing. It's super, it's very nice looking. They do all these lighting effects that I think are very comforting to people. The windows are bigger, which is noticeably bigger. Yeah. Um, they're, uh, electrochromatic. So they don't have a slide over them. They actually have a button that dims it out. Yeah. It never goes completely black like a slide would, but it's, it's enough. But the most important thing is because the fuselage is entirely carbon fiber, the plane's so light, they actually pressurize it to a lower altitude. Hmm. So one of the arguments is, you know, to keep aircraft light, they actually allow the the air pressure in the aircraft to decline to the point where it's like 8,000 feet. Yeah. And on the 787, it's like 6,000 feet, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's enough to make a difference. Mm. But I would think the most important thing is normal airliner atmospheres are almost 0% humidity, very, very low humidity, yeah. because they don't want it to rust the interior of the aircraft. Ah. But carbon fiber doesn't rust. Mm. So in the 787, there's actually humidity. Hmm. And I'm telling you, dude, like it makes a difference. It makes a difference, yeah. You you notice it's a better flying experience. But it's not – I mean, it's just an improvement on the overall aircraft, right? They've continued along there. There's a few other clever things that show up in the 787. Their wing design is smarter. Okay. Um, I don't know if you noticed, like, there's lots of tinkering going on with wings right now. Mm. Uh, you ever notice on, the, on like, uh, A320s and 737s and so forth, they got those little fences at the end of the wing, little winglets? Right. So that was a technology developed by NASA trying to make wings more efficient. When the wing just ends, it creates a vortex, basically like a, a horizontal tornado coming off the back of the wing, which creates drag and is kind of dangerous to anything flying behind it. Hmm. And so those winglets is devel- developed actually increase fuel efficiency by just getting rid of those vortex effects. Hmm. And in the 787, their wing design is, is what they call a supercritical design. It's got a little indent on the underside of the wing mm-hmm. that increases air efficiency, and the wing is super flexible. So it bends upward as it flies. And it rakes the wingtip back so it doesn't create the vortex effect. Again, it's all these tricks to become more fuel efficient, right? They're trying to make these aircraft burn less and less fuel. And it's made a difference in 787, one of the most fuel efficient airplanes ever made. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Raygun Pulse. You know about Raygun, that error in crash reporting software? Well, they've just launched Pulse. It's a real user monitoring product that gives you real-time performance data and user insights, letting you understand exactly what's happening when users interact with your software. Never be left guessing. Raygun provides you with the answers to your performance questions. Having found over 10 billion bugs in customer apps with their crash reporting product, Raygun now lets you understand application quality like no one else. Over 30,000 developers worldwide can't be wrong. Try it out today with a no-risk 30-day free trial. Check them out at raygun.io. So I got a question for you. Sure. It's a little off topic, but not really. Um, when you book a flight to go overseas, let's say you're going to Europe somewhere and we, you and I, we go to Europe a lot. Yep. Um, do you, when you consider a flight, do you look at the model of plane and say, Oh, I don't like that plane? I do, but I'm crazy. <laughs> I, and I do hunt down 787s to fly on. Can really? So I, 
how is that? How do you do that? I mean, how do you, cause you really sort of have to be in, in the middle of a booking before you realize what, yes, what the flight is. You have you to just dig all the out. way in and actually look at the aircraft, yeah. right? It, it makes a difference. And I'm, and I'm pretty good about, especially the short haul legs. You can often get on some fairly lousy little airplanes, yeah. you know, with tiny little overhead bins and things. Yeah. So I will go through and, you know, you have to know your planes well enough to go, I'd rather fly a 737 or an A320 than an, and an, uh, an RJ45, and I'd rather uh, fly the 787 long haul than a 767. Like, you just, I don't think you guys spend too much in airtime in airplanes to really know all that. So, what stuff. are your top five airplanes that you'd like to fly? Uh, all the wide bodies. When it comes to long range flying, 787 by far is the best. Mm-hmm. 777 is the good sack, the, the, the good next aircraft. Mm-hmm. A330, A340 aren't bad at all. They're, these are all wide body Those airplanes. Those are Airbus? Those are the two Airbus, the two big Airbus airplanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you can find a 380, there's not that many flying. Uh, those are, are quite the ride as well, apparently. And what's a 380? The 380 is the big Airbus with the two decks, Airbus. the huge, huge airplane. Okay. All but right. yeah, those are the, those are the big ones. Cool. Should we dig into some tech? Cause the most technologically yeah. advanced part of an aircraft are the engines. Sure. In fact, the end, each engine on a twin engine aircraft, Cost almost as much as the fuselage. Like if you basically divide out the price of a of an airliner, like something like a seven thirty seven, they're about ninety million dollars new. Each engine's thirty million bucks. Wow! Like they're the expensive bit of the engine, and fundamentally, their technology has not changed since World War Two. Huh? Since the axial compression engine was first built, and they are beautifully elegant, simple machines. Mm. They are literally just blades spinning on a spindle with a burner in the center. So if you go back to the original turbojet engine, as opposed to a turbo fan engine, a turbojet engine is a series of compression blades in front that compress air, mm-hmm. higher and higher pressure. Uh, in original axial flows, there was only one set of blades on a single spindle. Modern engines have two or three separate spindles, one inside the other. Okay. Um, mostly it's two now. Like if I talk about the latest generation engine that exists today, that would be the General Electric's NX, what they call the next generation engine, the one flying on the 787. Uh-huh. Probably the most advanced in this class. So you have a series of compressor blades. Then you have a burner where you fire fuel and ignite it, and it burns. Now, it's important to say that it burns. It defligates. Defligates? Right? It burns. It doesn't explode. Oh, okay. It doesn't detonate. And that's going to be an issue as we get further into this. Right. Okay. Like, we just take it for granted. Like, our internal combustion engines detonate, yeah. right? They actually explode the fuel to push a piston. Right. Inside of a turbine engine, it doesn't work that way. Mm. Now, as the fuel burns, it expands and heats up, and that accelerates it through turbine blades, right. these high-temperature, high-pressure blades, and those blades are mounted to the compression blades on the other side, mm-hmm. uh, on the other end. Mm-hmm. So, the process of the expanding fuel burning spins the turbines, which spins the compressors, which compresses air more. That's all there is in this engine, right? right? Like it's simple. Well, you've seen it when you've been watching an airliner sitting on the ground when the wind's blowing. The turbine spins because yep. it literally just flows right through. Yeah. So th- the elegant simplicity of that engine is important because it really runs very well and it keeps everything light. Now, to actually do all the things you need it to do, the problem with turbo jets is they're only hot air. You just have compression, burning, and then you have uh, exhaust out the back. And hot air is naturally less dense than cool air, mm-hmm. and you want as much thrust as possible. And if if you can push cool air more than hot air, you'll get more net thrust. And so 
Back in the 60s, they started developing turbo fans. So a turbo fan is a turbo jet, except that the outer frontmost blade, the part they call a fan, is dramatically bigger. Ah. And that fan actually blows most of its air around the engine. So that's cool air. So the inner core, the turbojet, provides the actual burning of fuel and that, and, and that power to spin this fan to shove cool air back. And to the point where a turbofan, 80% of its thrust comes from that fan air rather than the hot air. Mm-hmm. There's another big advantage to turbofan design, which is that it's substantially quieter. We all have memories. As people pushing 50, let's face it, you and I are pushing 50. Yes, we are. We have memories of ch- as children of jet engines being super loud. Right. Right? And the reason was they were turbo jets. The turbo fan makes it substantially quieter by surrounding that very hot core loud engine with quieter air. It's really cool how the 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 heat and the cool equalize the engine. Yeah, and it's and it's not even equal. I mean, it's literally 10 to 1 cool air to hot air. Wow. Right? It's a huge difference. The cool air makes that much difference in the thrust. And so, in fact, in the design of an engine like the Gen X, they talk about the fan bypass ratio, how much air is being pushed around the engine versus in it, as almost 10 to 1. Yeah. The compressing system is, I mean, it's hard to get your head around how powerful this is, that it actually, those series of blades, they're just blades, compress the air to 23 to 1. So, Mm -hmm. 23 times atmospheric pressure, although that's on the ground, right? Pressure goes down as we get higher. That's the kind of pressures we're talking about. In fact, before you even burn the fuel, the temperature of the air through compression is at like 450 degrees. Wow. Then you burn the fuel and it jumps up to 1700 degrees. Wow. Which is, so when you talk about the complex tech inside of turbofan engines, it's spinning these turbines at 30,000 RPM and dealing with these huge pressures and huge temperatures without them breaking apart. Wow. So, I mean, that's why these engines are so expensive. Oh, and they work every day, no matter what, incredibly, so reliably and so safely. We don't even think about that the, these engines ever failing. They work all the time. They're right. insanely reliable. Hmm. The least reliable part on an aircraft these days is the hydraulic systems. Now, that being said, remember, aircraft are insanely reliable, right? Right. They work really well. But hydraulic when you get aircraft as big as airliners, in order to have enough power to actually control it, you need hydraulic power, right? It, it takes a, it takes a lot of force to move the control surfaces on an airplane. But they, actually, the hardest thing to move is the landing gear. Main landing gear is very, very heavy, and uh, and also the flaps. So the parts of the wing that extend out the back to actually create lift when you want to fly slowly. Those are the things that require the most amount of power to control the aircraft. And so that's why they have hydraulic systems. Even though they they are heavy and expensive mm-hmm. and need a fair bit of maintenance. Mm. There's not a lot of alternatives to that. In the 787, they're starting to put in electric motors to uh, to replace some of the hydraulics. Mm. The, the challenge is that the motor is powerful enough to move flight surfaces are heavy too. And you need a ton of electricity. And it's hard to make that much electricity on an airplane. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to pour another dram of scotch and take a couch flight to the end of the show. Nice. Yeah. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today 
and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Greg Petros. Oh, congratulations, Greg. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. And Greg just won the D-Experience subscription from Developer Express. And if you don't know what we just did, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, which is now, we yep. give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And uh, that's coming up very, very, very soon. Yep, next couple of weeks. Next couple of weeks. So watch your inbox. Absolutely. So the Turbo Fan Engine is a great innovation. What's the downside to it, if any? Well, I hinted at it when we were talking through how it works. That the fact that it doesn't actually detonate fuel mm-hmm. means that it has problems with emissions. Oh, sure. There's been lots of stuff in the news about aircraft emissions. And just to be fair... If you include not just the aircraft themselves, but all of the infrastructure, all the vehicles on the ground to operate the aircraft and the airports and things like that, the total emissions for the aircraft industry represents about 2% of the total emissions worldwide. Yeah. Okay. So, but it is a growth industry. It is the number of aircraft are going up. It's getting bigger. And the biggest issue are nitrous oxides, NOXs. Mm-hmm. Uh, aircraft emit those because the fuel isn't particularly well burned. Right. As much as they've innovated in jet engines to burn it well, it's because it doesn't get hot enough, mm-hmm. not as powerful as it, as the explosions of even, even an engine on a car, it emits enough NOXs that it's significant. The cars still emit way more, yeah. but cars also emit them on the ground, sure. right? Aircraft emit them at thirty to 40,000 feet, where they stay up in the atmosphere for substantially longer. Mm. So there's a lot of pressure to get rid of some of that. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a couple of simpler innovations happening in the turbofan business to try and improve these things. One of them is they call a geared turbofan. So remember I talked about how simple a turbofan is? It's very simple. Right. You know, c- couple of spindles, everything spins. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems you've got is the limitation of turbofan engine designs, period, is the speed of sound. The air entering the engine has to be below the speed of sound. And this is true of regular propellers. You go back to World War II, they talked about compression effects. When you got the best, most powerful prop airplanes flying as fast as possible, sometimes the tips of their propellers would exceed the speed of sound, and that caused a lot of damage. You could lose control of the aircraft because of it. And it's the same problem inside of turbofan engines. They, that big fan... The, the largest fan part, which has got pushing all that cool air, mm-hmm. the tips of that are moving the fastest because they're rotating and they're the largest. Sure. They can't break the speed of sound. Huh. And, but the turbojet, the internal part gets more and more efficient the faster it goes. Oh. Right. So you have this problem where you want a big fan so it moves a lot of air, but it can't break the speed of sound. And inside you've got this jet engine that actually burns more efficiently if you can make it go faster. But don't commercial airliners uh, fly below the speed of sound? Always. Yeah. But think about the 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 pan is rotating. Mm-hmm. Air is coming at it at 
500 miles an hour, and then that blade is rotating as well. Mm -hmm. And the rotational speed means that the air is moving even faster on the edges of that rotor. And that's where it can start to break the speed of sound. I see. So it's one of the reasons that airliners normally fly not that close to the speed of sound, about 0.8, maybe 0.85 Mach. Right? They're slowing that airflow down. They're, they're, they're not going so close to the speed of sound so that their rotors don't exceed that speed. A geared turbofine, and Pratt and & Whitney's working on one of these. They're, they're about to fly with it. Actually slows down the spinning speed of the fan while allowing the internal compressor parts to move faster. It means introducing gearing where there never was gearing before, mm-hmm. uh, which increases complexity, cost, and, and, and weight. But the side effect is a more efficient engine with a higher bypass ratio. So I was talking about in the, uh, the, the Gen X engine, they got almost a 10 to 1. Right. The first version of the Pratt & Whitney engine, the 1000G, is 12 and a half to 1. Wow. So it's just that extra 25% means substantial fuel savings in exchange for this additional complexity. And does that do anything to the emissions side of it? Yes. The hotter and harder that the turbines can run, the better they burn the fuel, the less emissions they have. Is it because they burn more of the the particulate or whatever it is? Yes. Yeah. You're exactly right. They have more time to burn it. They burn it at higher pressure, so they break them down more. Mm. It's less emissions. Nice. It's a, it's a great concept yeah. and, it, and, it, and it's an interesting, you know, solution to the problem. But, you know, we could go another way entirely if you start taking an uh, alternative engine design. Well, please do. <laughs> so <laughs> pulse detonation engines. Oh, boy. That sounds Star Trek to me. Doesn't it? Pulsed detonation engines. Because one would argue <laughs> that the V1 buzz bomb that the Germans built Back in the uh, back in World War II, used a pulse detonation engine. Yeah. Although there's some question whether it was actually detonation or just explosion, because detonation is very high velocity. Yeah. You want detonation. Detonation burns the fuel very, very well, mm-hmm. and it makes a very high velocity stream of gas out the back, which is good, right? And for the most part, a pulse detonation engine. If you actually looked at one, and go look it up online if you want to see a picture of them, basically a tube. It's not much more to it than that. The air is compressed going into the tube by just the airflow of the of the aircraft flying. Fuel's pumped in and detonated at the right moment. It expands out the back and then it goes again. So why do they call it pulse? Is it because it happens on a on a regular heartbeat? Right, you're exploding fuel at a reg on a regular basis. Don't all engines do? Well, not jet engines, but don't jet engines don't, don't. combustion engines do that? Yes, yes, but regular car engines do this all the time so we don't right? call car engines pulse detonation engines you could if you wanted to but they are right? essentially huh that's exactly what they are and they use a spark plug right all that detonation process so you put that into the air mm. and you get up to a few hundred detonations per second you can get a heck of a lot of thrust out of that and burn the fuel more efficiently okay a couple of downsides yeah really loud <laughs> bang, 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 bang. yeah but a hundred <laughs> times a second yeah. really loud <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And actually, they would combine pretty nicely with a turbine engine. So imagine oh. in that space around the fan where it's moving the cool air, mm-hmm. you put a bunch of these tubes, you ram the cool air into it, detonate them, and fire it out the back. You'd burn fuel more efficiently, but really epically loud. Wow. Uh, and so they never made it to the commercial level, but they are an interesting engine design. Uh, and I'm surprised the military haven't implemented because there's so many possibilities. Some there. of those little puddle jumper prop planes are really loud too, though. <laughs> but that so. and that's the rotor, right? When you move a a, a rotor a propeller that quickly through the air, it rips the air, and you yeah. get that banging noise. Yeah. And so you know, 
part of the challenge is trying to quiet it down. But propeller-based engines, while they fly substantially slower, because again, that speed of sound problem, mm-hmm. they're much more fuel efficient. Yeah. In the 70s, there was actually a hybrid engine that was partially turbine and partially prop called the unducted prop fan, where they actually put the blades at the back of the motor. And it was all about fuel efficiency because this was coming out of the uh, the oil crisis. And so cost of fuel was hugely important. Right. There was a couple of problems. Again, noisy. Yeah. Right? You haven't got that fan in a shroud, so they just like a propeller, it makes a lot of noise. Uh, the other aspect of it that we don't think about much is blade loss. Blade one of the nice loss? things about Yeah. One of the nice things about a turbofan engine is that the entire engine's inside of a shroud, and that shroud is very tough. So should the engine break anyway, throw a blade, the blade will stay in the shroud. Ah. Oh. If you've got the blades outside of the shroud, yeah, sure. When they come off, they might go through the airplane, and that's bad. That would be bad. That would be bad. Hmm. Well, there's got to be other technological innovations in engines. Um, there are, but they get they. It's only when you get to going really fast. So this is sort of full. You know, all of our airliners fly subsonic. Yeah. Why? Why? Why don't we have the Concorde anymore? What happened to the Concorde, the supersonic jet? Well, I mean, the Concorde was a failure from the start. Why? Right. Because uh, supersonic has its problems. So they only built twenty of them. Right. The, there was an intent. This is going back to the nineteen sixties. We were going to do supersonic everywhere. Right. So here was this 100-seat aircraft. They actually had to design for a bigger one. But as soon as people discovered, two things happened. The first is the engines are really noisy on an engine powerful enough to fly supersonic. Plus, you're flying faster than the speed of sound. My grandfather took one. He said he asked the stewardess for a scotch and soda, and she said, what? That's nice. Like, I can't, <laughs> I can't <laughs> hear you. I can't hear you. Well, it's not loud inside, actually. It's kind of nice inside. Well, it's just, everybody on the outside. That was a relativity joke. There you go. You know, inside the cabin, it's actually not the speed of sound, but yeah. <laughs> so, like a like a jet at fighter plane, the engines on the Concorde had afterburners, yeah. right? And afterburners literally are a ring of fuel injectors out the back of the engine that burn fuel. Yeah. So they're terribly inefficient for fuel. Kind of like a turbo unit on a car, like a Saab, right? <laughs> Although turbos are smarter. Yeah. Like this is really dumb. This is inject fuel out the back, set fire turret, woohoo! But you needed those afterburners to get off the ground. So it's not taking the exhaust pressure like a turbo does. Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, turbos are smart. They take the exhaust pressure to compress air further, which is actually how axial turbine engines work anyway. Okay. All right. Uh, with an afterburner, you're just burning fuel out the back. It's pretty inefficient, mm-hmm. but it gives that additional boost so they can get off the ground. And also when they need to go through the sound barrier. Yeah. So the actual flight profile of the Concorde was big, powerful afterburners climb to altitude. You Then you accelerate up to your near the speed of sound. And flying close to the speed of sound is the dangerous part. Hmm. Flying slower than the speed of sound is fine. Flying faster than the speed of sound is fine. But it's breaking but the barrier. That's the problem. Between 0.9 and 1.2 Mach, right, the, the, is the danger zone. Is that and because so what the, something happens to the to the cabin itself? What what happens at that weird place? So what's happening is the shock waves are moving across the aircraft as you go through the speed of sound. Yeah. And they hit different parts of the plane as they go. And they can freeze control surfaces and even damage them. Wow. 
And so to, you have to go through that as quickly as possible. So on Concorde, once you're at altitude, which is 35 to 40,000 feet, you actually put the plane into a shallow dive and then you hit the afterburners and you accelerate through the speed of sound. So you go from about 0.8 to 1.3. As quickly as possible. So they use gravity as a little assist there. Gravity's on your side. The afterburners are running, wasting, which is fuel, in a fuel inefficient. And once you get above about 1.3, you can turn the afterburners off. Mm. And they, and the supersonic, and, and you can fly steady at 1.7, which is plenty fast. Wow. Right? That was New York, New York to London in three hours as opposed to six hours. Wow. The problem, of course, is, the plane's more expensive, right? It burns more fuel. So you're talking five to six thousand dollars one way. Yeah. Which is a lot of money. If you've got that kind of money to spend on a flight, you can get a first class ticket on a regular airliner, New York to London, mm. which means think about first class seating, right? Big plush seat, sure. all the booze you can drink, Wi-Fi in the air. Like, we basically made your living room in an airplane. It doesn't really matter that it takes three hours more because you're exactly. enjoying yourself. Dude, let me tell you, I flew the Vancouver-Singapore direct flight in first class many, many years ago. They don't even have that flight anymore. That is a 12-hour flight. It included pajamas, lay-flat bed, breakfast... At the end of the flight, I didn't want to get off the plane. I love that seat. Yeah, I think I heard this on Freakonomics, which is, you know, the, there was some place in the world, and I can't remember where it was, that spent bazillions of dollars on making a train that would go so fast between two cities. And it turns out that they would have saved a lot of money if they'd spent that same amount. They could have taken that same amount and given every passenger Free high-speed internet and a bottle of Dom Perignon. Right. Yeah. And everybody would have been happier. Everybody I mean, would have been... This is the interesting problem. Right. Now, that's if it's half as long, right? If we if we could go faster than that, what if we were doing Mach 5? Ugh. What if we could get there in 45 minutes? Is that dangerous for your body? Oh, there's an interesting theory that William Gibson postulated once that said the jet lag is actually the effect of your soul being pulled out of your body by moving so fast. <laughs> That's interesting. But no, other than that, not really. <laughs> well, there could be something to that in a roundabout way. I don't know. Well, it, but it gets really interesting when you start talking about really fast. Yeah. But before we go there, let's just talk about... So that's 1960s tech. It never really took off, pun intended. Yeah. Uh, you know, only Air, Air France and British Airways flew them. If you, there's a great couple of, t of documentaries on the failure of Concorde. Hmm. I mean, they had that accident in 2000 where they lost one of the aircraft. Yeah. And we talked and about this too, that they were going to come back in. And they came back on, on, on September, September 11th, 11th 2001. 2001. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, bad luck and, and a bad problem timing. design. It just didn't make sense anymore. Now, in the meantime, one of the things that happened around Concorde was that laws were passed that basically didn't allow you to fly supersonic over land. The, the FAA actually has a regulation that says civilian aircraft cannot fly above the speed of sound over the continental United States. You know, military aircraft can. That's from 1973. But at this point, that's the law. Is that because sonic boom is disruptive? The sonic booms are destructive. Hmm. The military uses sonic booms as a weapon. Hmm. They will do low altitude passes over enemy troops because it'll blow out windows, blow out eardrums, knock people off their feet. They're incredibly dangerous. Well, that's at low altitude. That's at low really altitude. high altitude. It just sounds like a big sort of explosion, right? And there's an interesting and but literally, it's like a thunderclap. Yeah. Now the question is, what if I could shape the boom? Ooh. 
So there's technology being de- that has been developed that they actually understand the science, the physics of sonic booms well enough that they can reflect the boom upward. Jordy LaForge could do it. <laughs> so there's this concept called sonic shaping. Yeah. And that at certain speeds, we can actually have no sonic boom reach the ground or a really mitigated one. Hmm. And there's this interesting question that says, what's the limit on a sonic boom? What if it was just a pop? Yeah. You know, the boom's still there, but it's not enough to actually even rattle windows or bother What people. if it's just a fart? Nice. Yeah. Sonic right? fart. There you go. Now, the faster you go, the more severe the boom is. A lot of the, the sonic shaping concepts have said hey, the vehicle has to be small. Mm. So that might make for a biz jet, mm. right? So there's a company called Arion making an aircraft called the SBJ. Now, this is a paper airplane in the sense that they've not actually built any. They've just made plans and trying to convince people to buy them. Mm. Um, and this would be a biz jet. So 11 passengers, but in theory, Mach 1.5. Mm. So pretty, you know, that the question is, would the super wealthy be interested in it? Now they're estimating that airplane would be, this is last year or two year ago numbers, $120 million a pop. Now consider the 737, which you could outfit as your personal business jet is about 90 million. Wow. For the 30 million difference, you can put a pool in it if all, for all you want. <laughs> the top of the line biz jet today, I would say is the Gulfstream G650. Okay. Which they literally can't make enough of because the you know the wealthiest want them. Mm. They're seventy million dollars a shot. Wow. So one hundred twenty million for a supersonic uh, biz jet is is unlikely to ever be built. But where this really gets interesting is you start talking about going really really fast. Like if we could do Mach five, we could do New York London in less than an hour. You know, thou you start thinking differently. You could sort of pop over, but that takes substantially different technology. Yeah. It's a, it's a very different kind of engine. So if you looked at, uh, well, we talked about, I think you and I have talked about this offline, the ramjet and the scramjet. So the ramjet engine, those are the ones that are on the SR-71 Blackbird. Admittedly not flying anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? It was an Air Force aircraft. Okay. Um, these are engines with very few moving parts in them, right? They're quite simple. They use airflow to detonate the fuel. Huh. Now, they're still subsonic, Okay. The, the art, actually, when you think about how the, I just finished telling you that turbojet engines can't handle supersonic airflow right, across them. Right. So how does the Concorde fly above the speed of sound? Well, that's a good question. I'm sure you'll answer it for me. They slow the airflow down. So uh-huh. if you look, anytime you look at any kind of supersonic aircraft, Concorde's an example, but any military jet, you don't see the engines. They're hidden. Hmm. They've got an inlet. And that inlet is there for a reason. It actually shapes the airflow. As the aircraft goes faster, a ramp will come down and reduce the amount of air that can reach the engine so that that expansion actually slows the airflow down sort of to like subsonic. Sort of like barn doors on a light? Exactly. In reverse. <laughs> and so, But imagine this. You're basically blocking the air so that the air has to – less air gets through at supersonic speeds, expands behind the ramp, and that means it slows down to subsonic speeds to enter the engine. Huh. Wow. And that's the art. Actually, if you look around for this, there was a great video of an F-15 pilot looking back at the pilot while he's taking off. And you can see the inlets for the two engines on the F-15. Mm-hmm. And you can see how they change shape constantly as he's flying. They nod. They move up and down. And they expand and contract to control the airflow to keep air smoothly flowing over the engines at all times. wonder what language that stuff is written in. Ada. Ada. Of course. 
So a ramjet engine is really interesting. They don't even fire up until you get pretty much above the speed of sound. Yeah. They slow the airflow down to detonate the fuel below the speed of sound, but the airflow coming in is above the speed of sound. And they create, they use the shock wave from the sonic air to detonate the fuel. Hmm. The airflow going out of the engine is above the speed of sound. And they, in theory, can get up to about Mach 6. That's definitely a Picard move. It's clever. It is clever. The the reason they can only get to Mach 6, like, why wouldn't that just keep working? Right. Right? Why would you just go faster and faster and faster? Oh, there's got to be some force acting on it at Mach 6. Well, what happened? Around Mach 5, things get really weird. But think about this. As air hits that engine and gets compressed, it gets hot. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then you, you're now detonating fuel on the other side. Well, your fuel only burns so hot. Mm. So there's a point at which your inlet air from compression is as hot as your exhaust air from burning the fuel, which means you, you just can't go any faster. You can't go any faster, right. You need, stuck, co- you need right? cool air on the in- input. Yeah. And so there's a whole other conversation here about what they, pre- what they call pre-coolers. Could we cool the air down enough that we could actually still burn it? Now, the the real limitation of ramjets is this thing called compression drag. Because you're limiting the airflow in, you're basically shocking the air in front of it to slow it down enough to have the fuel burn at subsonic speeds and the exhaust go at supersonic speeds, you only go so far with that. If you actually want to burn fuel at supersonic speeds, you need an engine called a scramjet engine. Hmm. Tell me about scramjet. So now we're doing supersonic combustion. Wow. So imagine the idea of I have air flowing into an engine. I need to inject fuel, detonate it, have it expand and push out in a couple of milliseconds. Faster than the speed of sound. It's faster, many times faster than the speed of sound. Now, it still gets compressed, but doesn't get pressed. It doesn't need to be compressed as much because it's supersonic the whole way. Yeah. All right. It's a great concept. It's a very simple looking engine. The thing is, it's incredibly hard to test because you can't make an air a wind tunnel moving the air that fast. Right. They've had to test it in the air. Sure. The record-setting scramjet engine, the most powerful one ever successfully made, was in May of 2010. Hmm. It was an experimental vehicle called the X-51A Wave Rider. About 25 feet long, it was launched off of a B-52 bomber. A rocket fires, which accelerates the, the Wave Rider up to Mach 4.5. Then it separates from the rocket. Scramjet engine ignites and accelerates it only as far as Mach 5. It ran for 200 seconds total. Whoa. So we're nowhere near airliner technology here. This is really like cruise missile technology. It's not very long lived, but Mach 5 is fast. Well, how fast was the SR-71? The SR-71 official top speed is classified, but it was above Mach 3. And the way it's described by the pilots was we were limited by the point at which the aircraft melts. Yeah, didn't it like stretch 11 inches or so in flight yeah. because it was so hot? So does Concorde. Yeah. Concorde expanded on the heat as well, right? Like that's part of the, but you know, all of those issues are manageable. The yeah. challenge is the motor. The thing that occurs to me as I hear you talking about this is the difference between <laughs> physics and programming, right? Yes. In physics, you have, you, if we had to do the stuff they did in physics, it would be called a Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> In programming, if we had to do, you know, oh, well, this is going to happen, so we'll tack on a little Band-Aid here, but then that's going to make this side effect, so we have to compensate for it here. You know, in programming, we just change the laws of physics. Yeah. We, we, it's our universe inside that computer. Yeah. We do whatever heck we want. So it's kind of a luxury to, to be in a virtual world. 
Oh, yeah. And I think it's one of the problems when we talk about the tech billionaires of this world that have lived in that technological world, that they they tend to just not be afraid to try stuff because they're used to, well, we can just change the rules. Right, right. Uh, there is an there is an engine called Saber, S- which is actually an acronym made by a company called Reaction Engines. Is it S A B R E or E R? S A B R E. Okay, and it is in the, it is notionally an engine for a vehicle called the Skylon space plane. They're talking about making a single stage to orbit reusable space plane because if a scramban engine worked right, you should be able to fly to Mach twenty five. Mm. And Mach twenty five is orbital escape velocity. Yeah. And so one of the innovations that Reaction Engine says they've developed is a thing called a supercooler that takes air from a 1,000 degrees Celsius and cools it to negative 150 degrees Celsius in 10 milliseconds. No. How do they do that? I don't know. I don't know that I believe it. That's some alien technology right there. That's like Roswell shit, dude. Well, look, if Skylon actually works the way they're describing, you'd be talking 45 minutes from any point to any point on the planet. Yeah. Which would be cool. It's just a pretty big jump from where we actually are. I got a couple more texts I want to, I want to talk about one other kind of engine, just as an engine that's totally out there insane, uh, that I'm sure people would send me notes. They would say, well, what about this engine? Boeing filed a patent a few months ago in 2015 for a nuclear aircraft engine. Okay. Wow. Oh, I just heard about this in the news. Are you kidding me? You're going to have a nuclear reaction with people like, you know, trying to sleep? Well, it's a few, the concept is a fusion engine. So what they're saying is firing deuterium tritium pellets. A fusion engine. Yes. Even crazier. Yes, detonating them with lasers. No. Lasers. So their, their emission, remember that's just hydrogen. So the emissions would just be hydrogen and helium. Hmm. Right? Uh, but they would be superheated and they would actually collect the neutrons by having the inner wall of the engine lined with uranium to collect the heat. Hmm. That heats up a coolant to spin a turbine to generate the power to run the lasers. That's okay? scary. They filed this patent, dude. Few problems. First off, laser detonation of deuterium tritium pellets has never worked. Hmm. Just ask Lawrence Livermore. They built the biggest laser in the world to try and do that, and it didn't work. Oh, um, so they'd have to solve that problem. I'm not saying it couldn't work, just that we've never been able to do okay. it. And I got to think the power efficiency equation here to connect enough energy from that fusion detonation to actually keep those lasers powered is suspect as hell. I kind of smell an ECAT here. Yeah. Seems unlikely, kids. <laughs> but they haven't built it. So, and they don't, like I said, all they did was file a patent that they have an idea. Now, a nuclear reactor on a submarine makes sense. Right. Because it doesn't matter that it weighs 50 tons. Right. In the air. Hmm. Look up Nerva. Yeah. It's a whole other conversation. Nerva? Yes. Nerva. N-E-R-V-A. From the 1950s and 60s, back when we believed that nuclear power would do everything, we actually tested a design for a nuclear-powered aircraft. Oh. Again, all military, maybe a separate show if people are excited about it. I want to talk about one other airliner technology that's gotten a lot of energy. Okay. It's a thing called the blended wing body. Uh-huh. Okay. In fact, there was a hoax a couple of years ago called the Boeing 797. Thousand seat aircraft. Popular science actually made up a, uh, 
a picture of one sitting on the runway at JFK that was so popular they sold posters for they it. They made it up. They drew it. They drew it. Now, the blended wing body aircraft looks vaguely like the B-2 bomber. It's a big flying wing. Oh, okay. Okay? And if you made one up with the same wingspan as a 747, it could probably carry close to a 1,000 people. It would be as big as a city block or more. No, no. Same wingspan as a 747. Oh. Okay. So it would work in regular airports, but instead of having that tube fuselage, you have everybody sitting in the wing. So the entire body of the aircraft is a lifting body. It's fuel then? Uh, The fuel's out at the wingtips. The main part of the body is a great big triangular seating area. Think almost like a theater-shaped seating area. Wait a minute. I thought you said the main part of the body isn't where people sit. Now, the main part of the body is where where the people do sit, in the center part of the body. But there's no fuselage, right? It's all blended together. It's just a big flying wing. All right? All right. Now, there's a few problems with this design. First off, the reason we make cylinders is that they hold pressure extremely well. Right, because pressure comes in from all sides equally. All sides. So you want a cylinder. You want a tube, yeah. right? That tube is easy to keep pressure out. Yep. This is not the shape of the flying wing body. Mm. So you need... It's much, you have to build structures to be able to handle those pressures well. Yeah. I'm not saying it's insurmountable, but it's complicated. Right. Next problem. There are very few windows, right? You're sitting in a big space now. You think about a conventional tube aircraft. You're never more than a couple of seats away from a window. Yeah. Right? Even in the center of a 747 fuselage, you're what? Four seats away from a window? You know where you are. You get a sense of up and down, left and yes. right. Because you can look over and see those windows, yeah. right? If you're talking about sitting inside of a flying wing with you and 800 of your friends, th- you're a long way away from a window. Well, they could overcome that with LED panels or LCD panels or something. I'm totally with you. Create an environment so that your the back of your seat is is can be a window at any time. You can look out and see and see the outside In fact, world. I right? think I read about some new plane that does that. There's lots of aircraft these days. On the ceiling and the, and on the on the walls so that it looks like you're sort of just in this big glass bubble. Which I think is kind of creepy, too. It's a little creepy, you? but it'd be cool. I don't the, know if I'd an interesting sleep. idea. Here's the last problem I think is particularly <laughs> tough. Evacuating the aircraft. Yeah. So, if, again, if you think about the design of a tube, you are never more than about 12 rows away from an exit door, right? Or roughly 40 feet. Or a new exit door could be made for you. Well, yeah, generally, if you get to that point, you're probably not able to exit yeah. anyway. So you think about sitting in that huge space. You're a lot further away from an exit door. And the rules are, the FAA rules for evacuation is you've got to get everybody out of that airplane in two minutes. Right? Like, and you, if you want to watch a cool video, look up A380 evacuation trials. Oh, um, I know this for a fact that. Uh, stewards, stewardesses, airline attendants, whatever they are called, go through intensive training. And the training is all about evacuation. And yeah, what, how to get people out of the plane quickly. And when people – I haven't seen this video, but I've heard about that, that they turn into like drill sergeants. Oh, yeah. And they're no. like, come on, move, 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 Because move. they only pass their test if they can get everybody off in a couple of minutes. Right. If you want to see something cool, you go look up the A380 evacuation tests. That is 500 people getting off an airplane in two minutes. That's crazy. It's amazing. And it's and it's done because there's enough doors on the A380 that everybody can get up and get out that quickly. And in a blended wing body, there's going to be really a long way from a door. You can't, and you, you can't put doors on the floor because that might be embedded in the ground. 
That is so startling, I spilled my scotch. <laughs> Don't do that. That's a sin. I actually did. So trying to get everybody off of a blending wind body, I think, is one of the biggest problems. Yeah. Now, here's a couple of strengths to it. Okay. It is extremely fuel efficient. Huh. It is very stable. And normally, you would put the engines up in behind the back of the aircraft, which is extremely quiet. Mm-hmm. All things that we're looking for in modern airliners. So the blended wing body is not done. In fact, the uh, NASA has been doing testings with a prototype called the X-48. Okay. They made three variants of it, the A, B, and the C, where they're testing aerodynamic effects and engine controls using this blended wing body design. So it is not done. Mm-hmm. They're still working on mm. it. And in fact... Most likely place you might see a blended wing body show up is as a next generation cargo transport aircraft. Lockheed Martin, who are the builders of the C-5 Galaxy, which is the largest um, uh, cargo plane short of the Antonov 225, actually have a concept called the hybrid wing body that shows how much more lift and fuel efficiency plus massive capacity they could have. So the military side might get blended wing bodies long before we get them anywhere else. Mm. Well, Richard, we're coming to the end of the show, but I want to ask you a question. Do you remember sure, when buddy. we were sitting out in, oh, I can't remember what it was. I think it was Hollywood, California somewhere. We were at some event and we were having lunch, I think, but we're outside, but there was a canopy and yep. there was a, 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 a helicopter went overhead. You could hear yes. it. You couldn't see it, but you could hear it. Right. And you just stopped talking and looked up and said, what did you say? I think I said it was an MH-53E. A Huey, right? No, nah, bigger than no, 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 Sikorsky no. makes the, Sikorsky. The, uh, the MH. A Sikorsky, right? Yes. Yeah. And I said, how do you know that? And if you said it was, if it was a two, that would have been a cargo plane. They didn't sound like that or something. Yeah. <laughs> so you really have been studying aircraft all your life, haven't you? Uh, it's a fascination of mine. No two ways about it. Yeah. Well, I really, really appreciate you sharing this with us because thanks, buddy. We just love it. We're eating it up out here. Well, I uh, I hope I covered enough. It's a huge topic area, and I I've definitely tried to narrow it a bit here. Because I think personal aircraft could be its own show. Certainly a bunch of military aircraft could be its own show. Uh, but I will leave that up to the listener. If you like this, uh, send us some comments. Let us know what else we can do. We'd love to make more. I'm still waiting for my jetpack and for my flying car. <laughs> okay, Martin Jetpack for you for Christmas. Hey, well, there you go. Okay, <laughs> I'll take it. All right, it'll get me to the studio from my house anyway. That's for sure. Yep. Well, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.